Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Durock, and this is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. Now, relationships, they can have their ups and downs at the best of times. I mean, it's tough enough to deal with a spender if you're a saver or live with a night owl when you're a morning person or someone that cleans up right after dinner with someone who awaits the kitchen fairy to deal with the dishes. But when you add cancer into the mix, it can amplify the good as well as the not so great parts in a relationship and then add layers and layers of practical, financial, emotional and sometimes physical obstacles for that relationship to duck and dive around. So on today's show, we're talking about the other half. What's it like to be the partner of someone who has cancer? And so I'm delighted to have here in the studio with me, Salma Cranefield. And her partner, Rich, has been on a previous episode of the show. It was an episode that we called Menage a Trois. Yeah, I know it sounds (laughs) a bit raunchy, but it was the combination of PTSD depression and anxiety. And we also have on the phone line with us, Jeff Salter, and he's been with his partner, Ray, for 14 years. So hi, Salma. Hi, Jeff. Hey. Nice to, ha- nice to be here, Tatum. Thank oh, you. I'm so glad that you're here. <laughs> Coming up later in the show, we talk to Jason Spenderlow, who is a clinical psychologist as well as having a partner with cancer, and Matt Finch, who was in his mid-20s when his partner was diagnosed. Can I ask you, Selma, mm. how did you and Rich meet? We worked together. Yeah? Uh, we both worked in telly and we both worked together um, many, many, many years ago. So we share a big passion for our career choices and, uh, yeah, our paths were on this, going in the same direction. And did you, did you know when you met him that he was something special? Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. Instantaneously? Yeah, absolutely. Very. And I think he was the same, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Jeff. And um, how did you and Ray meet? Hi, Tatum. Uh, we met at a university conference. It was a society for what Ray likes to describe as society for nerds. Called the <laughs> Golden Key Honours Society. But um, yeah, it was a, a weekend conference and uh, she uh, she went to a neighbouring university. So we met that way. Nothing wrong with being a nerd, Jeff. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> so how long, Salma, had you and Rich been together for when he was diagnosed? When he was diagnosed, we, let me think. So he was diagnosed almost eight years ago. So we had already been together 10 years. And can you tell me that. a little bit about his diagnosis? Um, he had, he was diagnosed with hairy cell leukemia, um, which is a really rare form of leukemia. Um, and in fact, they were quite surprised because he was mid 30s at the time. And it, it doesn't usually, they don't usually have diagnosis in people who are that young. So they were all clamoring for his blood, literally, because he had so much of the hairy cell in his blood that they all wanted a little bit to take away to universities to demonstrate with, which is very nice. So he was diagnosed the day before our 20 week scan because I was pregnant with our first child and then started chemo a little bit after that because we were heading into winter and there was a a threat of a swine flu pandemic so they didn't want to start his chemo even though he was quite poorly and then they started it in the January and he caught an infection after his chemo stayed in hospital in isolation and then came out of hospital three days before our daughter was born wow so it's a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, because you know when you're pregnant is normally the time that your partner is you know maybe doing a little bit more. Or, and I actually know, think it was harder for him to easier. be honest, because I think as the husband he really wanted to be there, and we were so ecstatic that we were pregnant, and I think he really wanted to to be doing all of those things to help paint the room and get yeah. things ready. And actually, it was our next door neighbour who was helping me carry bits of furniture up because he wasn't there. Um, 
and I, th- I think that added to his depression, to be honest, um, and the way he was feeling, because that's that's not something that you want to miss out on. And also think about your wife being at home, eight months pregnant, nine months pregnant, uh, by herself. And so he got out right before mm. you gave birth, so he was there. He was there. Well, he was going to be in the hospital anyway, but he was actually in the in the room with me, which is quite nice, yeah. rather than in his own room. And so that was eight years ago. Yeah, she's seven, so he was diagnosed when I was pregnant, so it's about eight years ago that he was diagnosed. Did you feel that once he was through that initial treatment and Mm -hmm. he was finally home, Mm -hmm. did you feel like it was an episode that that you would both move past as a couple? To be honest, um, by the time he came out, uh, we had a newborn. So at no point, I don't think, did I ever stop to think about anything other than looking after a newborn baby, uh, changing nappies and making sure everything was good there. And and he, you know, got better very quickly, I say, but he went into remission by the summer and and, and he does great. He's, uh, you know, he's handled everything that's been thrown at him really, really well. And, and we were just very, very busy with a newborn baby and now a seven-year-old. I don't know where the time goes. <laughs> And where is he at now in terms of treatment and...? Well, Harry cell leukaemia is very treatable, so his chemo was was great. Uh, The treatment he had was amazing and got him into remission very quickly and worked very well, but it's incurable, so it will continue to come back. And we've just found out last year that it's showing signs of, well, it's it's coming back. It's in his bone marrow, it's not in his blood yet. So he's fine, uh, as far as fine as far as you can be fine. Right. Uh, he, you know, he, he's at work, he's, you know, in the garden doing his running, everything, he's absolutely fine. And we don't know, it might be another couple of years, it's very slow moving, so it might be another couple of years before he has to have chemo again. But we're now on that trajectory once more. Um, only we had no notice last time because um, it took us so long to diagnose it or to realise there was a problem. Right. And now we're kind of aware every every month, every week, every day, that we well, that's where we're heading. So it's kind of living with that, that rhythm of knowing that at some point... We've always lived with the rhythm of knowing because we knew that it would come back. But now we know, because you always imagine that you're going to be the one that it doesn't come back for. You think, oh, well, mm-hmm. yes, I know it comes back and it comes back for everyone, but probably us will be fine. So knowing that we have that diagnosis, that it's creeping back in again... Yeah, we, I mean, we we have a very happy life. We're very we enjoy every single day. Uh, we did before. We doubly do now, and it's just one of those. It's I I don't know how else to say. It. If I sat and thought about it every day, I would go mad. But um, we just we go from appointment to appointment and deal with it as it uh, as it comes up and as we're told. And there's nothing else really we can do. Jeff, how long had you and Ray been together when she was diagnosed? Uh, we'd been together just on two years. And um, was anything that um, Salma was saying, did, did you find that sort of resonating with that sense of living with this kind of new rhythm of life, of appointments and checkups? In a way, yes. Um, Ray's cancer was... Was um, she, Ray had a uterine sarcoma, and her treatment was surgery. She never went through any um, radiation or chemotherapy. So, for for us, it was it was more about the regular checkups every three months. But there was no um, uh, apart from the anxiety and the the worry w- when those checkups were were approaching. It wasn't like there was a um, uh, as well as she, she was like physically healthy, so it 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 really was like the yeah you know, the rhythm of the the checkups. But there really was leading up to those checkups a week before um, leading up that be, that Ray it was more Ray became anxious and worried about what could happen. And we went uh, we went for nearly ten years. Ten years was going to be our milestone, um, and she had a recurrence at nine and a half years. So. Just when we thought we'd we're about to reach a milestone of one year, then um, she had a they, they found another another tumor in the abdomen, so we had to restart all the way back to those three months. So yeah, I think some of what Selma was saying resonates. I, I, I found uh, yeah for us it was 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 uh, was slightly different. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, sorry, I'm, I don't know if that's as uh, um, if that makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think you know it kind of how people feel varies widely. I think I agree with. Um, I, I know how Jeff feels with the bouncing from one appointment to the next. So before um, Rich's diagnosis came back last year, uh, we had six monthly appointments and we would be pretty much fine for five and a half months. And then the last two weeks, uh, just very quiet at home, um, both of us thinking about the appointment coming up. And that's how we bounced every every six months so five and a half months no problem and then two weeks really mm. not great not we didn't even need to talk about it. there's nothing to say I can't say to him it's going to be fine uh, which is the only thing I really want to say but I can't so we both know what it is we both can't do anything about it I don't know if that's the same for you Jeff and I'm very yeah. sorry to hear about Ray by the way thank you uh, um, yeah it, it, you want to say it's going to be fine but you can't it's exactly you know, it's very it, hard there is there is no certainty that it's going to be fine. It's something you actually just got to wait for those results and be there, be supportive. And how? But just saying the words "it's going to be fine" is never it never works. And that's the fine. first time that I've not been able to say that to him because I'm always very much a, oh, we'll work it out, we'll sort something out, we'll do it, we'll you know whatever. And I and I think you probably feel the same way that it, you feel very helpless. Yes. And how yeah, does, well, that's, sorry, to me. Oh, it's okay. Um, how does that, that feeling of feeling helpless or feeling like, you know, if you're watching your partner be anxious and worried, where do you think that sort of manifests for you? Do you find yourself carrying extra worry? Do you find it harder to communicate? Uh, yeah, it's, it, is, it is difficult to communicate. I'm... I always want to to fix a problem. I was like, no, there must be something we can fix, and uh, we, there's something we can do to so- solve this. But the only thing I, at the end of the day, that I can do is just be there for Ray um, mm-hmm. and talk to her and and try and understand what she's going through. Not knowing that it's not, I'm never, I, I'm never going to fully understand, and just providing some providing some support as best I can. That's absolutely how I feel. And have either of you sought support for yourselves? I, for the first time l- last year, ironically, just uh, I say ironically because a, a month, about a month or three weeks before Rich was diagnosed again, I just found that I was finding it really hard to cope with things. And I finally sort of had a chat with someone on the phone, actually someone that Mitch, Rich met through Shine. And she sort of said, look, just take some time for yourself and... and, and don't take on anything and you know go for long walks and things like that and then immediately after he was diagnosed again so it's like well I can't do that I'm gonna have to get back jump back into this pot again um so I'm delaying again I think but I don't feel that I don't this is what I want to do I want to be there and 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 you know and actually weirdly kind of snapped me out of it a little bit because I've got other things I need to focus on and what about you Jeff yeah, I haven't. When when Ray was diagnosed, we we both went to a um, some group counselling for a couple of sessions. This was provided by the Cancer Association of South Africa. They had sort of partner sessions, uh, which was a group session. But following that, I I haven't actually gone out and looked for extra support and. I think that's to my own detriment and to mm. our relationship in a way. I think it's something that I've I've always been struggled to talk about my emotions mm-hmm. and talk about how I'm feeling. So that's fact, it's not something I, I want to willingly go and do. Right. It's I the think, asking for help as well. I find I don't the, do that. Yeah, yeah, it's asking for help. Uh, I think the the first time I've actually really spoken about it is actually when I was introduced to Shine, and I think it was the Shine conference last year. We I was able to. Well, I was talking to other people. I was like, okay, fine. We can. I can talk about this. And I actually think it's even though it is now twelve years, twelve years on. I, I still think I need to probably seek out some counselling and talk to somebody about what I'm, what I'm I've been through. Because I don't think I've ever dealt fully with my emotions on this. And I think that that's that's impacted how I support Ray as well. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's the thing. It's it's a really tricky balance when you've got a lot of energy and emotion wanting to support your loved one. It can sometimes feel really hard to um, refill that well that you're drawing from. And, and I imagine sometimes you don't want to admit that you're not doing great because you're almost like not even thinking about it. You're focusing on that other person. For me, it was hitting a wall. It wasn't a, it wasn't a oh, I think I'm... It wasn't a gradual thing that I was aware of. Yeah. Um, for me, it was when my dad died uh, two years ago that actually that I, I, I realised I hadn't dealt with him dying. I hadn't dealt with Rich. I hadn't, I hadn't had time, to be honest with you. And it was actually Rich who pushed me to speak to Cathy in the first place uh, but it took me about six months to call her yeah because that's you plant the idea and you think about it and think about it and think about it and think about it and then you send an email and then you think about it a bit more mm-hmm. and then you finally give a date and you finally have a chat and you feel a lot better after it a lot better I have to say but then I'm not going to do anything else now <laughs> so it, it's very hard and it- Jeff, you mentioned meeting other people at the conference last year. What was it like being around other people that could identify some of those experiences? It was a relief in a way. I remember we we were talking about um, someone was talking about how the 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 family is not not dealing with with their cancer. That they they they've completely gone. They've, gone cold or I can't remember the situation it was it was almost a relief to be able to relate to that because I had a very similar experience I had very little support from my family and which which um, which made sort of the whole being it being supportive to Ray even more difficult so it was a relief to actually hold that I'm not the this wasn't just an isolated this isn't just me this happens with all different families it was it was it was good to know that that uh, yeah I wasn't the I, I don't have the only crazy family <laughs> um, and I wasn't I'm, I wasn't the only one going through that sort of experience. Yeah, uh, certainly uh, family issues and people's very strange reactions is something that gets talked about a lot from people that have cancer. But I've also noticed, yeah, the you. you know where you think that the partner might get support from isn't necessarily where they can go to and that was that was one of the one of the biggest areas where we, where we struggled was we found that friends and family who you expect to be there to support you suddenly don't want to know about it they don't want to they don't probably accept the fact but uh, you were you expecting to have someone to lean on and they're no longer there and in the worst case they start actually being quite uh, quite nasty and you not only have to deal with cancer you have to deal with a friend who you thought was someone who you thought was a friend are actually uh, giving you more stress. Yeah, and that that's a really isolating place. It's really a lonely place. It is, it is, especially when those people are supposed to be, yeah, well, can be a family. Yeah. So it, it limits the number of people that you can turn to for the support. I very much divided the people after Rich was diagnosed with proper friends and I found that a lot of people that I hadn't known for very long were incredibly supportive mm-hmm. um, so there's a flip side to this which is you really find out who how many wonderful people you have around you and you you sort of and it, it you know it's a shame when it's people that you care a lot about who are turning their back on you but uh, yeah. it, it's it's just one of that I didn't have time for that I don't have time to waste my time thinking about them or um you know, and you sort of go, okay, now I get you. Okay, fine, we put you in that box over there. But you know, I did find that a lot of people who there were there were a lot of people who um, I hadn't known for very long, who were incredibly supportive and who were there on the phone whenever I needed them. But the isolation really is, which, which Shine the Plus Ones has alleviated, is that nobody really understands what you feel until you meet someone, as Jeff was saying who is in exactly that same position and with all the best will in the world a lot of my friends don't understand exactly what I'm going through in the same way that I don't really understand what Rich is going through I can talk to him I can read about it I can empathize I I can understand to a degree but I don't know his feelings and he doesn't know mine and so he what he gets from shine which is why he goes to shine by himself he needs to and the support group he's had has been phenomenal for him 
and then the plus ones has opened up a world for me which as Jeff was saying it might the only thing we have in common probably is what we're going through but that's enough because it's enough to know that you're not sitting there thinking these things by yourself that there are other people close by wherever they are they're on email they're on the phone and it makes you it almost makes you feel better even if you don't ever speak to them again to know that they are there and that you're not going mad by yourself at home and it's a way of integrating your life because i i don't know if you if you relate to this jeff but there's that compartmentalizing that starts to happen and when you're kind of living your life in a regular rhythm of life you're not having to do that you're not having to put things into boxes i talk about this with certain people and not with others and and of course when those circles become smaller you're not maybe talking about it so much then it's you and your partner and of course you don't want to lean on them if they're having a tough time someone showed me a diagram which was if you imagine like um almost like a target and in the center um is the person and then you've got rings around they said it's supporting crap out so the idea is that you want to be giving to that person but you need somewhere to put your absolutely your you know your shit really you know someone to vent to and then that person maybe it doesn't want to vent to you but like goes to someone else but when that chain is broken it can be really challenging you can't give what you need to give Mm-hmm. I think if you were, if you're not able to to vent somewhere else, and that this is what the Shine Plus One group um, is amazing for, even in the, the the short amount of time that it's been in existence, is that we all feel the same sort of things and we go through all the same sort of emotions, but not at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if I can, there's a couple of the girls that I met, the ladies that I met there, who um, we we fire off a couple of emails every now and then and if you you know that if you want to at six o'clock in the morning send a little email going oh, i don't feel great today that the other person will be going oh no it's a great day the sun's shining come on let's uh you know that's not that big a deal that's not that big a deal come on and then the next day maybe it's me that doesn't feel so great and mm-hmm. she's already in a happier place so she can fire one back saying no do you know what you're all right go and get yourself an ice cream and you'll be fine that's that's what's so important because no matter what time of the day it is no matter we we all we get it and it's about getting it and it's about not feeling annoyed that someone has texted you at two o'clock in the morning because you know that at two o'clock in the morning sometimes you're in that place and other people cannot and and, and I'm glad that my friends don't know how this feels. It's not a group that I want to be a part of. It's a great group Mm. but it's, uh, you know, I'd rather not be in it to be honest. Uh, But people understand and I think it's that you only get that understanding if you live it. Yeah, they they often call cancer a club that you wish you hadn't been admitted into and I think what often gets overlooked is that it's not just the person with cancer admitted to that club it's their partners their loved ones because your lives are are deeply impacted as well but sometimes without the the same resources and without people thinking about you you know kind of taking on board what what you have experienced thank you so much Jeff for chatting with us today. Please say hi to Ray for me. Oh, will do, thank you. And good luck. So we've got Matt Finch on the line now. And Matt, you were in your 20s when your partner was diagnosed. How long had you guys been together when that happened? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we were, well, I was 26 and she was 25 when she was diagnosed. And we'd actually been together only about eight months. So we were quite new into our relationship when she was diagnosed, actually. Yeah. And so, can you tell us a little bit about her, what she's been diagnosed with? Yeah, so she's been diagnosed with um, thyroid cancer. Um, so thyroid cancer is uh, a cancer um, in your uh, neck. So she had uh, like a lump in her neck uh, for some time, actually. She never really noticed what it was at first she thought she had like a cold over the winter and then one day it just uh, it grew quite substantially um, and she went to get it checked out and after a series of tests it was diagnosed uh, with, with thyroid cancer now the thyroid is like a nodule um, in your neck so um, a lot of her surgeries uh, and treatments have been targeted to, at that area and what kinds of treatments has she had she's had uh, she's obviously had surgery to remove the thyroid so she had to first 
first surgery to remove half the thyroid when it was diagnosed and then when it was diagnosed with cancer um, she had further surgery to remove the the rest of the thyroid so she's now um, she now takes a tablet called thyroxine every day mm-hmm. uh, that helps regulate uh, her th- uh, hormones her body temperature that sort of thing so without the tablet she hasn't got any hormones and she's quite tired she's body can't function she just feels very energyless after the treatment she had uh, after the surgery she had a treatment known as radioactive iodine mm-hmm. treatment that involved going into hospital for three days um, having a tablet sitting in hospital letting the the radioactiveness get to work um, it was the, the idea was to kill off any remaining cells um, that might have been left behind from surgery and um, what it did mean was that we weren't able to spend that much time together initially it was such a high dosage it was for three weeks we could only spend an hour together because of her being radioactive so that obviously was quite difficult and then she has had uh, since that treatment four times so it's always a course of having surgery followed by the radioactive iodine but fingers crossed she hasn't had anything else yet there was talk most recently of having uh, radiotherapy which is similar, but it's external radiation rather than taking a tablet. Um, but they felt that at the moment it's fine to hold off uh, from that because it's not that severe at the moment and they're quite happy with her progress. So at the moment it has just been the, the surgery and the radioactive iodine. Right, and were you guys living together when she was diagnosed? We wasn't actually. Um, so I met Sarah in London and she was living with flatmates and I was living with a flatmate as well. And we'd obviously been dating for a couple of months quite seriously, spending quite a lot of time with her. And But no, we weren't living together at the time. And I think there was a lot of discussion when she was diagnosed. So I wanted to leave London anyway. And she came to London for her work and it wasn't something that she was really keen on at the time. So she didn't really enjoy living in London anyway. But at the time, I think she felt that she was going to then maybe move back home for a while to live with her parents, just why she was going through the treatment. She didn't really want to live with flatmates, even though she'd known them a couple of years. But I felt at the time I wanted to, a new challenge as well. So we said, look, look, let's just give it a go. Let's just move in together. It's quite, a, obviously, a, a lot of people thought oh, it's quite soon, it's quite quick. But at the time I thought, well, you know, obviously dating this girl, didn't really know what was going to happen at the time. I thought I might as well just give it a go, really, because... Obviously, I wanted to support her the best way I could. I think you're amazing, I have to say. I'm just going to throw <laughs> that one in there right now. Not a lot of people would do that. That's a really amazing thing you've done. But I think I think looking now, two years later, I mean, we've left London, we've got a house together, and um, looking back, and when I have these kinds of conversations with people, it was quite crazy, really, that we did move in together. But I think if we hadn't moved in together, maybe we wouldn't have been together now. It probably right. would have been a lot of pressure on our relationship. But obviously moving in with her, I felt like I was able to support her a lot closely than what I would have if I wasn't living with her. And I think I don't have any regrets. I think it's made us really strong over the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely was the right decision at the time. When people ask me, oh, was it too soon? And I say, well, at the time, I wasn't quite sure. I was probably just doing it because, you know, you're trying to fight this thing and you just want to do what you think's right at the time. But yeah, I definitely feel it was the right decision. Oh, that's that's wonderful to hear. That's really, really lovely. Was there was there anything that you found challenging that you weren't expecting it to be that hard? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing was I think for up to a year since when uh, since when Sarah was first diagnosed, maybe I was in a bit of self denial. Maybe I didn't really accept that it was cancer. It was something that was just, I almost treated it like, you know, uh, someone gets ill or someone goes into surgery, they they have to have something done and then everything's going to be okay. I never really accepted it as cancer and I think it was only after about a year I I really realised how serious the situation was. And during those 12 months, obviously Sarah was going through all different kinds of emotions and she would get upset and she would be fearful. And I kept saying to her, look, it's, it's going to be absolutely fine. You're going to go in, have your surgery, have it removed, and we'll just carry on living as normal. And the reality hit was when she had the surgery, 
that's only then really when the real test started. Mm -hmm. So actually, in my opinion, the surgery was the easy part. It was the whole emotional roller coaster that we had um, after the surgery. Things like Sarah going back to work and not being able to get, you know, stop getting stressed about is it going to come back? Because ultimately, when she had the treatment and the surgery, uh, the doctor said, look, you know, it, it looks okay now, but we can't say what it's going to look like in six months' time, for example. In terms of my support to Sarah, I was always able to give her that physical support when she was going into surgery, things like that. But then giving her the emotional support was quite difficult yeah. and not and being able to say to her, look, don't get upset. Because I think in the, the first sort of 12 months, I, was, I kept saying to her, don't get upset, it's going to be okay. But then in the end, I realised actually she needed to get upset. She needed that time where she was able to express her feelings without me sort of trying for her to not get upset. Because yeah. I didn't want to see her getting, you know, upset and crying over those issues. But then I realised actually that it needed to happen. She needed to obviously express her feelings. Yeah. How about you getting upset? Did you let yourself get upset? Uh, not not initially, no. I think with me, what happened was, I, like I say, I was in a bit of denial for the first sort of year or so. And um, I never really saw it as cancer. I think like, my brain didn't allow that word to come into my head. Um, so I just saw it as, yes, yeah, she's got to have something done, but then it will be fine. And it was me really trying to get her to not be upset and trying to keep going as normal and keep being positive and actually I did get quite stressed coming up to the first sort of 12 months and have some time off work and instead of getting upset I think I was a bit burnt out from everything mm -hmm. and I just felt really tired and really energyless. I was actually signed off work for three weeks just so I could just uh, have some time for myself because I was obviously plowing all my time and my energy into helping Sarah and I probably neglected myself but at that time, I don't think I really did get upset. And I think I have since got upset on several occasions. But now I've obviously accepted it a lot more. I know that it's a normal thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, sometimes that, that process that you describe of the, a denial of it and then yeah. moving through different stages towards acceptance, it, it's almost like how people deal with grief. And I think yeah. in some ways, when your partner has cancer, you're grieving almost the life that you should have been having if they didn't have cancer. So it might be your partner being there to paint the, the wall of the nursery in Salma's case. And, you know, that kind of the life that you expected to have. And there, there can be like a, a grief that's going on, but it takes yeah. different forms at different times. I do think as well that when you're in the middle of having to deal with with this and it's a huge thing that you have to deal with that if you allow yourself to think about the enormity of it you'd never be able to cope so I think that when you say uh, sorry Matt that you you didn't allow yourself to think about it being cancer I think that's a natural survival yeah. instinct almost because if you let yourself think about it then you just crumple into a ball and never do anything whereas if you believe you have to be the strong one you have to be the one that says no it's okay come on you know, we'll keep going, and and this is fine. Uh, I think it's I think it's natural, and I think that certainly for me, I, I didn't feel stress really as I was helping Rich because he's my husband, and and of course I was going to help him and be there and make sure that the house was still standing and that he was at his appointments and pregnant or not. It it, it just is what it is, and and then it's only later when everything's running smoothly again and he's fine and then other things start to pile up that really didn't ever ever affect me um, individually shouldn't have been a problem I bat things like this away all the time mm. I found quite hard to do I found it quite hard to do little things to do basic things and it was then that I started to realize that actually there was too much building up and that these little things that I was supposed to be doing weren't that big a deal but they were a big deal and why were they a big deal and they were a big deal because I hadn't actually addressed any of those problems that uh, that had been in the back of my head ever since. And did you have physical sort of manifestations psoriasis. of your psoriasis? Mm -hmm. A little bit, but that's a stress-related thing. And Matt, with you, when you were signed off work, was your GP quite understanding of what 
was yeah, going on with my you. GP was very, my, yeah, my GP was very understanding. When I, in that, I mean, I've changed jobs now, so I've moved to Birmingham, but in that particular job, it was quite a stressed, a stressful, um, fast-paced role that I was in. And I was really worried that it wouldn't be known as, you know, acceptable for me to, to go off from, from my colleagues at work. Even though my colleagues knew what was going on in my personal life, I almost felt pressure to have to go in and keep delivering. When I went to my GP, straight away, she just said, look, you just need, initially it was for two weeks, but with, you know, to see how I felt and then if I needed an extra week, that it was absolutely fine. And she just wrote me a letter and it was almost a weight off my mind actually getting that document and just thinking well actually the GP, if the GP says that's what they feel then mm-hmm. that's what I can fall back on as well so I did end up having the three weeks to be honest I think it was needed for me I think I was quite like I say I was quite exhausted um, from it, 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 having that time off just felt like a little bit of a, a weight off my shoulders I was able to like reflect on the year and a lot of the things that I've been shutting out of my mind I was able to like really think about um, but the actual stress for me um, came in the form of like exhaustion. So, I mean, I'm quite active normally. I do a lot of sports and a lot of running and I was not able to go to the gym or do any sports. I just felt completely, I just felt my muscles had completely given up on me. It was a, it was a good three weeks to have the time to really just, you know, relax and just um, really think about what everything that had happened over the 12 months. I think the point that Matt makes is is an important one in that, um, it, you know, it took his GP writing a letter for him to get the time to kind of grieve and get over whatever, it, you know, the stresses. Because I think one of the biggest problems facing the partners of people who have cancer is that you can't stand next to someone who's got cancer and say, what about me? You just can't do it. You can never do that. And there's nobody saying, what about you? With the, you know, and, and it's not... It's not that they should. They should be focusing on the person who has this illness. But the stresses that we have and the and the emotions that we go through are are just as strong in a lot of ways. You know, we're not thinking about dying. We're thinking about how to carry on living. To be brutally honest, mm-hmm. that's that's you know, it's like what on earth happens after, and it's a, it's as big a stress in a lot of ways for the next forty, fifty years. And I think that the the shine plus ones, and I keep referring back to it because it is so important and it's been such a, it's had such a massive impact already in its infancy to myself and and clearly to lots of other people is that it's just saying, look, we're not even going to talk about that lot over there. This is about you. And it's really important to have someone saying that because we're never going to stand up and put our hands up and say, look at me, everybody, look at what I'm going through because it is never, ever, ever going to be as important or as big as what our partners are going through. But it doesn't have to compete is the point. And I don't think that there's enough of people coming forward and saying, right, I want to ask about you. And from my own point of view, Rich's haematologist did used to say to Rich, how's your wife? But she didn't say it to me. Mm. And why should she? She doesn't, Mm. you know, he's her patient. But um, people would ask how the baby was and how rich was but it kind of I I was just meant to be there looking after everything which of course is fine but I think that there that there just isn't there isn't any kind of function in place that looks at at, at us as a group and says right we're going to just take you away from this for a minute and properly sit you down and properly talk to you about what's going on because we are never going to ask for help that's the problem and I think that's where you end up getting signed off work and that's where you end up kind of realizing that even just loading the washing machine is becoming a little bit too much and and it doesn't have to get to that point and it is a whole education thing but at the same time I do understand from the NHS point of view the budgets aren't there to also cater for you know, in the long term, it makes sense to to support the people that are doing the supporting because mm-hmm. then there's less pressure on the NHS in the first place or on. Uh, but but you know, I understand that budgets don't go that way. But I don't know that it even needs to be that big a budget. I think it just needs to be sitting someone down in a room and saying, "You're right, cup of tea, let's yeah. have a chat." Because yeah, the other side of it is, I remember going in for my third chemo. And one of the nurses came up and she was like, where is she? Where's your partner? Is, is she coming? And I said, no, she's not coming today. And she was like, oh, 
are you guys together? And I said, yeah. And she goes, oh, because often people have broken up by now. And that's kind of, you know, for a lot of people's situation, a lot of people don't make it through this time for a whole number of reasons. Some people don't have the support, maybe not able to deal with it. And there really does need to be something there. Matt, have, how did it feel being at the the Shine Plus One's workshop and being around other people and talking about all of this? Yeah, for me, it was a real benefit, actually, because not that long ago, I actually had a counselling session. Mm-hmm. And um, the counselling that I had was uh, over the phone and it was provided through work. And, but unfortunately, I didn't find it that beneficial to me. I felt like the, the person um, delivering the session, I wasn't able to really build much of a bond with, and I felt like they were just ticking off boxes more than really getting to understand my situation. And at the time, I knew that I was going to be going to this um, Shine event. So at the time I had it, I didn't think much of it, but I wasn't too upset at the time because I knew I had this opportunity to meet obviously everyone at the Shine event. For me, that was almost better than having counselling. I think actually being able to speak to people who really understand what it's like to be in my shoes was really beneficial. And as I said on the day, I'd really uh, encourage us to get together and, and do more things like that, actually, because I think you know other people really understood uh, where we're all coming from on the day and I think just being able to talk about your experiences and hear other people's experiences was just fantastic. Thanks so much Matt for sharing your experiences with us and say hi to Sarah. And now joining us on the line is Jason. He's a clinical psychologist as well as also being in the position of having a partner with cancer. Hi, Jason. Hello, how are you? Yeah, we're doing good. How are you doing today? Yeah, not bad, thanks. So how did you and Charlotte meet? Met in New Zealand, actually, when she was travelling over there, because I'm a Kiwi, so I met her when she was travelling there. And, yeah, we really kind of got together when I relocated to the UK, which is over six years ago now. And how long had you guys been together for when um, she was diagnosed? It was literally inside um, kind of two or three months after I came over here. Yeah, so it it wasn't long at all. She um, was off work because she was not feeling great in general when she ended up having a scan. She had a um, a tumour um, in her abdominal cavity that had ruptured really so she became acutely unwell once that happened and had to have surgery around Christmas to have that tumour removed. And how were you feeling at that time? I think it was, it was a bit of a whirlwind because it, it did happen quite quickly. It happened over a period of weeks and um, but yeah it was it was quite overwhelming. I think that I was in the middle of adjusting to life living in a new country to have that happen right at that time well to have it have it happen at any time is really difficult but to think to have it back at that time was particularly stressful i think because you know i didn't have the sorts of support people physically present that i would have otherwise if something like this happened in new zealand i mean it happened right around christmas and so that added an extra layer onto things and um yeah, it was just um, a real mix of different kind of emotions. It was just it was just very, very challenging, though. And you said at the time it was overwhelming. How did that sort of manifest for you? Looking back, it's probably fair to say that I really switched into kind of doing mode. It's funny, when someone's having treatment for cancer, it, it gives you kind of a focus. And it, I, I think uh, in some ways it can be helpful with, feeling kind of helplessness and feeling helpless and out of control. So that, that treatment feels like you're doing something actively to combat the disease. And I think around treatment, there's all sorts of logistical issues to take care of around getting to and from treatments or to and from hospital, looking after the person's basic kind of needs and trying to keep them comfortable. I think that was definitely a mode that I was probably comfortable with partly because it just gave a clear focus and some practical concrete things to do. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you how you mentioned a lack of control because I you know that's something that often people that obviously are, are receiving treatment also talk about and that it extends further out like that kind of 
where to put those those feelings and yes as you said sort of making them concrete yeah in terms of the doing sort of masks some of the other ways that these emotions kind I of think squeeze when you're, out when you're taking so hi jason it's selma um hi i think when you're doing something like you're making appointments and you're you have something that you can control you can get them there on time you can bring them back home you can make them a cup of tea or whatever it is you need to do and you grab hold of these things that you can do properly because the rest of your life and your world and the space you occupy is so completely out of your control that you have to focus on something to keep yourself kind of grounded almost and and it, it you throw yourself into that into the right today I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this and the appointments at this time or today I'm going to go and visit and I'm going to take some of this with me and I'm going to take that home and then I'm going to wash that and then and I was sterilizing things and 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 all that you you focus on those those minute details of things every day because the the rest of it is so big and so uncontrollable that you couldn't possibly face life if you thought about it or tried to deal with it, because you can't deal with it. Yeah, I think when you see someone you care about going through something like this, I think, well, for me personally, I don't know about other people, the situation of seeing someone you care about suffering and, and not really being able to do anything about that really is, is I think, for me, probably the hardest thing to manage emotionally. And so, yeah, I, I think... You're most grateful for something practical to do when the opportunity arises because you can, you know, it, it can help partially kind of offset that sense of not being able to do anything. And, and maybe that's what I mean when I talk about feeling out of control. It's, it's more not literally feeling out of control, but feeling like I have no kind of say over this person's mm -hmm. health, the well being, and their prognosis. There was something that you mentioned during the workshop that you call taking the emotional temperature. And it was a phrase that really stuck with me because amongst those concrete tasks is also constantly sort of surveying for any clues of what's going on emotionally that your partner might need. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I think when you're trying to gauge where someone is at emotionally, um, in a situation where you're very much part of that, the first thing you probably need to do is try and gauge your own emotional state or emotional temperature. Because I think, you know, what two people so intensively tie them together into a situation, you're obviously going to have a really major kind of reciprocal effect on each other. And so I, I think, although, you know, it can be easy to sit um Having a trying to have a sense of where you are feeling emotionally before trying to gauge someone else's emotional state, because I think if you're particularly upset or in a not not a very good place, then that can really colour the way you perceive someone else in terms of mm -hmm. how they are and what their behaviour kind of means. So I, I think you need to have as much focus on yourself as the other person when you're trying to work out where the other person might be position psychologically or emotionally so you know from, from there I guess it's important to have a sense of the, the kind of signs that someone's not doing so well and I, I think you can get to know someone over time just without explicitly kind of asking about that um, but I think it's impor important to be wary of any kind of assumptions that you think someone might be in a certain state when they're not so yeah. I, I think if Hopefully, you're and hopefully you have the type of relationship with your partner where you're able to say, "Hey, when you're not doing well, I kind of notice that." Is were you aware of that, or do you agree with that? And using that as a discussion point to try and learn about each other's emotional response and, and signals, and try and as much as possible have an accurate sense of what a particular kind of behaviour um, kind of might signal in terms of someone's emotional state. Is that something you can relate to? It is. It's it's an incredibly hard one. And I think the fact that Jason, with his background and his training, um, struggles with it as well is, is quite telling. Because with everything that we know and, and, and read about and... Uh, we have a, my husband and I have a very good relationship. We talk about everything. But 
there are things I will never understand about how he's feeling. And there, as I said, there are things that he will never understand about how I'm feeling. And that's a really hard one to to negotiate because I can't tell him that things will be fine and I can't tell him that I understand how he feels because that's just hollow. And we both know that that's, that's not going anywhere. And I think that sometimes... You know what we we give to each other is uh, is as much as we possibly can, and there needs to be something from the outside that comes in that that fills that hole. So where Shine fills the hole of the twenty, thirty, forty year olds, which existed a massive hole that was there before, Shine also fills the hole where the partner can't even help, and Shine Plus Ones now fills the hole of the other side. And I think that it's not something that as a couple you should be expected to deal with all by yourselves. And although we can read each other's emotions and we can understand that, you know, he's a bit low today or I'm a bit low today or, or however, there is a limit as to how much you can do about that. And And I think that having having the opportunity to be able to call someone or email someone or you know I send an email and I already feel better even before the response comes back um, and I know that my husband wrote a blog and did a video diaries and that was his way of being able to get his thoughts down that he wasn't able to even say to me because he probably didn't even know how to put it into words until he was writing it down or saying it on camera and I think that it, it it's not just the support isn't one thing the support has to come from so many different areas and the fact that this is happening, shine, shine plus ones, and it's it's only it can only be a good thing. And talking to each other in this way, which is, as far as I'm concerned, a completely new thing. I've not bumped into this anywhere else. And I think that having these discussions is the only way that we learn and go forward, in order to be able to strengthen it for other people who may find it harder to talk right from the start. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I mean, having having a really good relationship, as we do. It still has holes where where we need help from from other areas, um, and I'm, I'm sure that Jason ha- has the same sort of thing going on with him. Yeah, I think as a couple, I think it's easy to fall into kind of traps or bad habits of kind of interacting with each other. We can get really kind of stuck and be, you know, you can yeah. um, not a, not intentionally, but you know, take take things out on each other a little bit. And um, I, I found that when we've collectively or individually kind of talked to someone else about the situation that it can be really useful if nothing there's something about kind of even just talking out loud about it um outside of just the two of you which I, i think can be quite 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 a positive thing in terms of sharing the experience and just feeling like you can break out of the sense of kind of isolation that two people can really get into when you're mm-hmm. trying to deal with a disease like this you're too close you kind of you're too close to each other to 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 see what's going on around I think and you can behave badly with each other and you can say things because you know that fundamentally at the end of the day they're still going to be there it's like kids um, who go to school and behave and come home and shout at you it's the same sort of thing and, and the outside help can only help and yet there is such this, this image of like what it will look like. I, you know, I sometimes think about on film that, you know, people look into each other's eyes and they say really poignant things to one another, whereas relationships are messy. There's no script. And, yeah, and, and the thing is, the person with cancer often doesn't know how they feel and, and what they feel f- can change in half a second. So, like, how on earth in that scenario is someone going to be able to keep up with it yeah you can't. read those signs i did find this idea though i'll see what you you guys think of this it was a checklist that you print out and you put it on the fridge or somewhere and it has all these different little boxes that you can tick and one of them is like i just want you to listen to me talk i just want to be by myself i just want to um watch a silly movie I'd prefer you not to try and fix me you know like all these different kind of pre-set um, things and then the idea is the person can go to the fridge and tick a box <laughs> so if you want to like have a little bit of time to have a giggle and not talk about cancer one of them on the checklist was I want to hear how you're doing um, meaning the, the partner that doesn't have cancer so that you don't 
because it must be so hard. Like, do you want to talk about it right now? Do we talk about the stuff, the bad, the tough stuff when things are good? Do you, do you talk about the bad stuff when things are tough? And trying to gauge that, I just thought that was quite a useful little thing to go on a fridge and be able to tick a box and just say, okay, we're just going to have dinner now and not talk about it. Or actually, yeah, I really... I find we don't talk about it. You don't? Not, not because we make a conscious effort not to, but if we need to, we... We can say something or we see something interesting written down, we can talk about it. But the closer we come to appointments and the closer we come to having to do anything, there's nothing to say. I mean, it sounds ridiculous because it's the biggest thing. I can't say anything and he can't say anything. And I think the checklist could help people who maybe struggle to speak Mm -hmm. to each other. I don't think it would help us massively. I don't think we need that. But then that's the point, that there's tools and you can use what you need to use to help you because yeah. um, you know we're all individual people we're, we're members of this club as I've said because we have one thing in common maybe we find a few other things that we have in common but fundamentally it's one thing and apart from that we're all very 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 different people leading very very different lives but brought together by this one awful thing that we have to live with I think when you think about two people going through something like this you've got in general the really wonderful advantage of the person who has the cancer being supported full time by someone, um, as opposed to you know if you're on your own. But I guess the other side of that is the added kind of complexity. And if you think about that kind of checklist idea, and one person wants a particular thing or wants to do things in a, do things in a particular way at a particular time, then if the other person wants something very different, then that can be a really difficult thing to try and negotiate and work out. So I, I think people automatically think, oh, well, thank goodness that person with cancer has that husband or wife to support them. But I think um, it does come with challenges as well that um, are perhaps not as readily acknowledged. And it's a really, really tough thing to be able to support each other in a situation where you're you're both at different states of mind at different times. and. Uh, it may not be the case that you commonly meet up and you both want to talk at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I guess if you can have your own kind of systems in place and be communicating about well, what you do in those situations where you don't meet up, then I guess that, that's one way to try and kind of combat that. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about things in the ideal, obviously. Um, don't think because I'm a clinical psychologist, I do things right a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we did wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wonder no more. (laughs) Well, I think that's the thing is emotions are raw. It's dealing with the biggest things that you can possibly deal with in life. It's dealing with fear and mortality and it's the, the the biggest topics that we can ever really discuss or have to face. It adds a lot of complexity to a relationship. I mean, relationships are complex anyway. Yeah. And when you add such a big event or thing in, like cancer, particularly if, you know, the prognosis is poor or someone stays unwell for a long period of time or there's recurrence, and it just, you know, um, it makes makes things just infinitely more complicated. And I think um, sometimes you're doing incredibly well if you can say, if you can just say, well, we're we're holding things together at the moment. You know, sometimes Mm -hmm. that is... I think sometimes that is a good yardstick of success. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> well, being able to stick with the tough times, I mean, that that is enough of a challenge in itself to not want to leap for the, the door. No, I agree. It uh, makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you found it, that in ways you've, you and Charlotte have become closer? Yeah, I, I think that... On the one hand, the extra stress has been a real challenge for us. On the other hand, I think we've had to confront things that we would not have otherwise had to confront. And I think we seem to have moments where you can see that our alliance has been really strong and, you know, we've had to face and experience things that no one else will kind of know about. I mean, we're quite private people individually. And I think that, you know, when visitors have gone home on the evenings when the door kind of closes, you know, you're still with that person, both of you. 
and your experience of the cancer is incredibly unique compared to those of other people, you know, friends and family. Uh, so, yeah, as I said, I, I think it has, I think it has the opportunity to both bring you together um, as well as causing a, a more of a strain on your relationship. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing about relationships, though. They're layered and tricky <laughs> and <laughs> so many things can be happening at the exact same time. Thank you so much, Jason, for that's all right. sharing that with us. You're really welcome. Thanks, ladies. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Jason. Thank you so much to my guests, Salma, Jason, Jeff, and Matt. To sum up today, I think that if you are in this position, going to Shine Cancer Support website, and you can see their plus ones. Um, there's an online component as well as meetups at conferences, the Shine Camp. Now there's um, drinks in London that's going on. But if you're in another part of the country, you never know, you might be able to start a group there. But do know that there are places that you can go to and to access help at places like Maggie's talking about it and then acknowledging that if you get help, if you can refill the well, you have more to give. That's it for today's episode of Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. Thank you so much to Lauren Costi for doing our music, to Lizzie Doe for designing our logo, to Radio Facilities to always making us sound good. And we'll see you next time. 